Okay, uh, good evening, everyone. We've um, got quite a few questions, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna try to uh, get through them. Um, and anything we don't, we're gonna we're gonna put on the Facebook page and put some thoughts on there. Um, we'll try to we'll try to get to the heart of the um, the answer without um, rambling on too much. Looking Not looking at anyone in particular, Michael. Um, just generally in that direction. It's an anointed ramble. Uh, <laughs> Right. Okay. Uh, we we the, the purpose of this is clarity, uh, and uh, we're not presenting ourselves as experts uh, on this. I certainly am not presenting myself as an expert on any of this. Uh, but we we really want you to understand what it is that's been presented. So um, if you did ask the question, we're going to ask you just to see if, if you got the answer that you know helped you understand what we what was being presented. Does that make sense? All right. Question one. Now this is the this is the the question we finished with last week. That I very rudely cut Keith off. Yeah, it was eight o'clock, Keith. I wanted to go home, but um, we promised Keith that we would, would start with this one. So here we go. It is my understanding from Scripture that it is God's will for His people Israel to return to the land He promised them. There is a movement in the church that you may be aware of, focused on repatriating Jewish people to Israel, holding the belief that this brings both blessing to the church as we bless Israel and also ushers in the return of Christ. What are your thoughts on this as a mission for the church today? Greg? <laughs> no comment. Okay. Um, this particular subject, I hope, is one we're going to w- grapple with moving forward as a body. Because um, remember I was saying there's the three positions that... Israel that kind of doesn't matter anymore. Um, Israel and the church are two separate and distinct entities. And um, and then there's the house of Israel is together as one, and he's bringing his house and grafting us back into a single house. Um, so these questions very much relate to what position you would sit in when it comes to that. Um, because... I've come from the view that I believe what Scripture is actually saying is that Israel is one house and that we are grafted back into I believe Scripture is saying that. Um, in fact, I believe Scripture is screaming it. So that being the case, the only way I can answer these questions is a little bit different from a lot of the late, later type evangelical or modern teachings which have come in which says that Israel and the church are very two different things if I view that we are Israel then the question um, and I do what are your thoughts on this as a mission for the church today Um, much like when we say we don't go to church we are the church um, is the same way with with Israel nowhere in, in scripture is Israel a piece of dirt. There's a land promised for Israel. And so for me, it's it's slightly addressed in the same manner as we look at the building and the church as a mission for the church today. We are to hear his calling. My sheep will know my voice. I've come for the lost sheep. Loves it. It's, it's about responding to him. And, um, and that's about this great plan he's bringing of bringing his house 
uh, together into one body, one unity. And so uh, the mission, from my perspective, would be to seek him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, because <laughs> I believe we are that. So that's, what's the other one here? I, probably what I'd add to that is I've always been a bit skeptical of, of movements to try to usher in the return of Christ. Like this idea of let's, it's, he's taking too long, let's follow these steps so that we can get him here sooner. I've, I've always been really uncomfortable with, with that approach to mission. Like we've got to get the gospel to every uh, language group in the world so then Christ can return, rather than we need to get the gospel to every language group in the world so that they can hear the truth of Christ. It's like, I, I don't know, Christ returning will be the best thing ever, but I think about my family and friends who don't know him. I personally am in no hurry for the Lord to return until everyone who can be saved is, has, has heard the truth and had a chance to respond to it. So um, I'm not saying that this is the motivation of, of, of this particular movement, but... Um, uh, I also don't think that we uh, have been given the mandate to usher in the Lord. I believe he knows when he's going to return and he's got a plan. And I think we should kind of run with that rather than trying to speed it up. It's my, my personal thing. Yeah. My, my two cents worth on it is that um, if you're asking me, do I think that the Lord is saying this is something the rock should be doing? Probably the answer is no. Um, but if this is something that is on your heart, then I think you keep that before God. And you pray and ask the Lord, what are, you tell, what are you saying to me about this? What's the revelation you're giving me about this? Is this something you want me to, to pray about? Is this something you want me to, to get involved in? But, but um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel that it's something for us as a, as a body to to put our weight behind, but that's point in time. Um, and uh, but you know, I encourage everyone to to kind of hear from God themselves on on these things in terms of what He would have them do. Uh, connected question: How do you define Israel? Who was Israel in respect uh, to the end times? And this is something you've touched on a little bit. Just real quickly. Um, if Israel is defined as us, um, then in the end times, uh, he's working his total plan of salvation um, together, bringing his house back together. So, I'm quite sure what's is that me? Oh. Um, so again, uh, in respect to the end times, um, I. In fact, I'd actually say that the book of Revelation and what's revealed in it, if you understand that perhaps we are a part of this whole picture, um, it actually can bring real beauty and depth to that very book, which we've been avoiding. And um, I know when the Lord helped reshape my understanding of who and what Israel really was, um, how much more clarity it actually brought to the whole scripture. Has, has anybody experienced that at all in here? Yeah. It's interesting how it can really bring um, some real depth and clarity. So, But I understand that the people that, that, um, that have a different view on this, um, they love the Lord they're seeking and are believing to do what they know 
to do best at that time and um and at this time and uh i more go about what he would have me do than running around telling everybody what they should do and if my testimony speaks to them then great you know i'm not sam sure yeah um from from my perspective to be um the issue is not necessarily just about being in Israel, it's about being in Christ. And the promises that God made to Abraham right back at the start of the, New, uh, of the Old Testament was that he was promised, um, he, he was made promises um, of God being his God and him being, and him being, and him and his descendants being his people. And Paul interprets it in the New Testament. He talks about his seed or his offspring. And he says that the promise was not to seeds being his multiple physical descendants, but to seed, one seed meaning Christ. And so the issue for us is that to be in, um, is for us as being in Christ, we can now spiritually participate in the promises of God because we are grafted into Christ. And he's the rich root of the olive tree. And and so physical or ethnic Israel have to be grafted into Christ too, and they come back at the end of the age um, to fulfill a specific physical calling in the millennial kingdom. Um, the church has the church is called to a heavenly calling where to, to govern, to reign from heaven, and the physical ethnic Israel reign from earth. So Israel is both physical and spiritual um, as to... I think as to um, there's scriptures that Paul talks about about moving uh, moving Israel to jealousy, um, and I think as the church, as those who have been spiritually um, brought back into the to the one covenant, the one people of God, we make a demonstration in the authenticity um, and the organic life of relationship with Christ, of being a people in the Spirit, that they would see the Messiah in us, and that would move them to jealousy. Um, so I think as we just go about our everyday lives of living as authentic Christians, the hope is that those who are predestined to salvation, those who are of the physical descendants of Abraham, would see the authenticity of our lives and would accept their Messiah. Um, I hope that that's just my quick my quick few cents. I don't know. No, but just to just to back you up a little bit there, Sam. So, so we've got a physical and a spiritual reality happening here. The weightier matter is what? The spiritual. Yeah. So if we try and just make everything physical, pieces of dirt, um, DNA to lost tribes, all of this has its purpose in, in the together in both the physical and the spiritual. But ultimately, what will matter, the weightier matter of this, is a circumcised heart being grafted into his plan. And he calls that house Israel. And it's a beautiful thing. And he does have a land promised for her, literally in the millennial kingdom. Um, and um, and we will see that play out. But the weightier matter is spiritual. Does it help? Same question. A related question. Uh, is this, I need to know what the deal is with the 144,000. This uh, is 12,000, obviously, from uh, 
uh, would be Revelation 7, 12,000 from each tribe. Uh, but does that mean the other 11 tribes will be undivorced? Also, who are they? Is this be, uh, before or after the tribulation? If the 144,000 is literal and only from the 12 tribes, then which tribe do we fit into, if any of them? If we don't fit into any tribe, then are we just kidding ourselves? There are billions of Christians out there, so who exactly are the sealed 144,000? It's a good thing we can, uh, we've got these easy questions first. So, you know, the 144,000 is an interesting one because actually it, it, it's 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, yeah. And it actually lists them out, doesn't it? There's one missing in Revelation from what was given first up. Do you know what tribe that was? Dan, it is Dan, yeah. Um, look, the, the, the real thing here, this 144,000, there's been religious cults and sects built on trying to interpret this a certain way, hasn't there? Um, in fact, at one point, the Jehovah Witnesses believed only 144,000 were saved. Justified, actually, by his blood. It's pretty serious teaching. Uh, I think they've upgraded their position on this of late, and now the 144,000 rule over those. <laughs> so they're, they're kind of moving with the population growth. Um, but, but we don't have to be people that move the stake poles around, right? We just need to know what it says. And what it says is that, that they will be what? Sealed on their foreheads and in their hands, right? By the seal of the living God. And in a very special time. And that time is known as the Great Tribulation. Now, there is a uh, an incredible witness that will be going on. Now, when it says from the 12 tribes, that's interesting. So are we looking at that spiritually or physically? My honest position on this would be it's probably both. But when this plays out, these people are going to play a huge part of delivering his truth at that time. Um, and sealed for a very specific purpose. They are servants, chosen for a reason. Um, there's a whole reality of um, a number of questions that brings in, which we can't get into tonight. But what I want to do um, is just try and peg this off and how they were asked. Um, but does this mean the 11 tribes will be... Does, but does that mean the other 11 tribes will be undivorced? Well, by the way, it was 10 tribes that were actually <laughs> uh, removed. Um, 11 if you bring Dan into the equation Dan is not mentioned back in Revelation um, but what I will say is this um, what we are seeing is the whole house of Israel being restored so his blood is actually paving the way to restore this whole thing this beautiful covenant um, so it's not about an undivorce. It's actually in the sense, if you understand what was broken, which was conditioned, it's actually about her ability to remarry into, or as the Bible puts it, be regrafted back into. Because the groom has to die in order for the bride to remarry. Under so, And this would have been really, really difficult for people to understand that the Son of God, the, the deity of Christ, is actually if you get this, is actually seen in this um, to an unbelievable degree. No one could perceive a God that would actually die for his creation. 
so that she could make a choice to love and know and to remarry, guess who? The one she actually was unfaithful against, to remarry. But she's now going to make that choice and learn something that wasn't just on a set of tablets. It actually made it to the heart. This is a very powerful thing if we get this. And this is built into the Hebrew culture, in the ancient where in marriage camp. We wouldn't know this because of our upbringings, and that's fine. But when you look into it, they were very aware of this. They knew there is no way there is going to be a remarriage of any sort here. Back to the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because how can God die? So he had a little card up his sleeve, didn't he? A lot. Of, you can just imagine Satan and the fallen angels and whoever else monkey business was going on, just going, scratching their head, going, what is happening? Because if they had known what truly this was about, they would have done everything in their power to prevent what occurred on that cross. They didn't get it. He had this up his sleeve and they were doing something. And by the time he resurrected from the grave, <laughs> you could I just picture Lucifer going, screaming. inconceivable what God pulled off and the whole heavenly realm was watching this. It's beautiful. We're in good hands. Um, so when you look at uh, the remainder of this question, 144,000 literally from the 12 tribes, yes. Which tribe do we fit into? I don't know. Um, do you know that, that the 12 gates of the New Jerusalem, do you know each of the 12 gates is one, is labeled, you look in the book of Revelation, the revelation of him, each one of the gates is labeled one of the tribes of Israel. So you will be walking in by one of those gates. Now, do I know which one it is for you personally? No. The only one we really seem to have a grasp of on the earth right now is Judah. Because we call everybody Jews, don't we? We don't really know where this is going. So if somebody asks me, Curtis, what tribe are you from? Well, I've got two questions. I don't know that physically. And I don't know spiritually which one I'll be grafted into. What I do know is that he knows. And if I keep going and I get to know him, he is going to graft me in through one of those channels, just like it's promised. So can I answer it for you? No. But I know the one who can answer it for you. And it's him. And by the time my life's over, may I know such a thing? Maybe. But what's more important to me is not what tribe I'm grafted into. It's who's grafting me into any tribe. Do you understand? So we don't get caught up in, you know, even DNA debates or, or whatever could be going on. Um, if we don't fit into any tribe, then we're just kidding ourselves. Well, you do. <laughs> there are billions of Christians out there who, uh, out there, so who are exactly are the sealed 144,000? Well, they're chosen, especially for a task. But don't worry, that doesn't, Disclude. Do you know the 144,000 that come that are serving in the Great Tribulation? Do you know the multitude that follows in behind what comes out of the Great Tribulation? Mm -hmm. Does anybody know the numbers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. they're innumerable. Can, can I just Western make one, one other com one comment uh, alongside this? I think um, there is a danger in pulling bits of this out um, and trying to look at the, it in isolation. Um, the sequencing is really important. If you if you have a look at um, the 144 aren't revealed until after the seventh seal is broken, after the sixth seal is broken. 
because in verse in verse uh, three of chapter seven it says, "Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants of our God on their forehead." So, um, so why do I say that? Well, you know, I'd say that because sometimes you know there's, and we've talked about a church where where actually they're calling this out as though that were happening now, as though the 144,000 were being identified now. So um, just just remember this is, there is a sequence here. Um, there's, a, there's a staging that happens here. Um, and um, and uh, see these things in light of that staging rather than going, you know, gosh, you know, well, are we the 144,000? Am I... Am I Am I one of those? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic point. You know, the 144,000 themselves don't know it yet. That's my honest uh, view on it, I believe, as Mike's pointing out, if we're to be scripturally honest about it. I don't think it's possible. But there will be 144,000, and at some point they're going to know it. And if you find one, get around them. <laughs> Yay, team. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, I wasn't quite that last that last sentence you said there is going to be one hundred and forty four thousand, and eventually they will know it. Was that a serious thing? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I I don't necessarily know that. Um, They'll know that. No, no, that um, that the numbers we're talking about are literal numbers. Uh, it's interesting. We we choose to take some things in Revelation very literally, and others. We, we take as a symbol, um, a metaphor for other things. And it's, it gets complicated when you start saying this is literal and this is not. Um, and I've, I've always struggled with, um, like I come from a very literal background on this because my family spent some time in the Jehovah's Witnesses. So there's a very, specific, very strong understanding of what this means to them. So I came out of that uh, and it was always about us and them being in the 144,000. And there's, there's certainly lots of, uh, of scholarly, uh, uh, scholarly work on this to present the idea that the 140,000 actually a number that, that talks about completeness and it's representative rather than being an actual, there is only 144,000, uh, 12,000 from each of these tribes that, um, uh, that will receive this level of glorification. So you're, you've said that uh, it's not literally the 12 ethnic tribes of Israel. Is that right? No, my view, my view is actually it is literally 144,000 and no, that no. it's spiritual and most likely physical. I know for sure it'll be Okay, spiritual. well, so part of that answer is that it's literal. That's the number. But the other part of it is that uh, it being the, the tribes of Israel is not literal. Oh, no, I think that's literal too. But spiritually... The, uh, the question would be, is it physically as well? I don't know, but I know for sure. Okay, well, when I say literal, I mean, I mean fleshly. Oh, um, oh, sorry. No, well, yeah, let me explain this again. The, where I'm coming from as opposed, I'm not quite sure where, um, uh, where Clay's coming from on it, but where I'm coming from on it is this. It's literally listing them out. And if we understand what's happened at the front of the book, it gives us a lot of insight as to what's going on with the back of the book. If I allegorize the back of the book or the end of the book, I would have to allegorize a lot of things at the front of the book. Um, so for me, it's difficult to not see this in any other view that is being very literal. 
um, even as it identifies, just like it's identifying the 12 gates. You know, it's going to such a degree where it's just laying it out over and over and over again. Why go to that point? Why would it go to that effort? So for me, that's where I would struggle with certain parts of the Old Testament if I don't make this literal. That's a whole other discussion for another night. So for me, it is literal. Literal to me doesn't only mean physical, it also means spiritual. In fact, I think spiritual is the way to matter. So is it possible that not only are these people being grafted into something spiritually, um, as in one of the 12 tribes, but that they have a physical lineage that is going back to the, the, the tribes that were actually divorced and that went out uh, and that seed went to the four corners of the earth. I, I believe it's possible it could be both. But for sure, I believe it has to be literal in the spiritual sense. So for me, literal is not being defined purely by Why, Why does it have to be literally 144,000? Uh, no, well, no, no, I mean tribes. I'm speaking of tribes. Okay. Yeah, so it's well, we have a different understanding, obviously, of what literal means. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that's actually in the question, where the question was, well, how do we know which tribe we're in? And if we're approaching it from a literal perspective, that is a question. Oh, well, am I in Reuben? Am I in Judah? And I don't even know if that's a question we need to be asking. I don't, I don't know how that's relevant, but that's where this kind of goes. Um, because if it's literal, why were those tribes listed out? Why does, why does Revelation say 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe? That's a great question. We'll see. Well, that, that's what this understanding actually yeah. leads me wondering. Yeah, and that's, again, if, if we were, why would the scripture confuse us unless we were to look at it and understand it? See, that, that's the whole point. We are given the revelation of who? And he's actually listing these tribes. And then he's listing the gates. And then he's listing the numbers. And then he says, you know, and at what point do we allegorize or literalize anything? We must let Scripture define Scripture. I can't find anything in Scripture that would allow me to allegorize this. So the, the issue, and then I've got to ask the question, why would he even mention it if it was to cause confusion? Why even write this down? Why even bother saying even one of the tribes if it didn't matter? I've either got to look at it and go, he did write it, it is given to me, and I should contend with this. No matter what my view may be, my teaching, my doctrine, whatever it is, I need to know why. Because I know he didn't put it there because it had no meaning. It would be very difficult for me to accept that the very revelation of who my Messiah is wrote me something that I was not even supposed to think about. I totally agree. Probably what I'm saying is that actually your approach to this actually confuses me more than an understanding that this is representative of completeness. I find, yeah, what you've shared, which may well be true, uh, but yeah, I find that actually more confusing to me. That's fair enough. I was more confused until I looked at it this way, but that's fine. I mean, we can go through our ventures and our journeys from either direction, but the main thing is, is that we continue to ask and push through. It doesn't, Clay's got his view, I've got my view, there might be other views on here. Just keep walking, searching, asking, seeking, right? Hold on, let, let, sorry, let that be heard. 
I can't hear him. I'm just asking Mike or Greg or someone to read verse 9. Just keep reading. That's what the Bible's all about. You don't don't have to go into interpretation. You read the verses before and after, and it explains. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, and all the tribes and people and tongues standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Yeah, that's, that's the verses. So basically the 144,000 are a subset of an innumerable multitude. Yeah, that's, that's another view. Anyway, so point, we, yeah. we should start to contend. Yeah, yeah. we'll thresh this out in DDT for sure. Yeah. We should probably move on to something else because we, we could do this for the next 40 minutes. And, and that I'm not satisfied on that. And, so yeah. And they often do can, on a Tuesday can, night. Can I just add something which is relevant but may appear not quite relevant? Um, I, I think this, this, this is interesting because what's happening right now is why there's so much division in the church and why we struggle to actually be the very thing Jesus called us to be, which was one. Because we try and understand all this through um, unrevealed and some have revealed. I'm not saying who has what, but what I'm trying to say is, is that this is a revealed position that only the Holy Spirit can bring us all into. Hence, we have to walk together and it's really actually about love being formed in all of us and oneness being formed of us as we tackle these things. That's actually what God's really trying to do in all of us. And so he creates this, and yet there is an answer because there's only one truth that he's trying to lead us into. And, um, and that's a revealed position. And I think it's just actually beautiful what's, what's happening right now because this is why there are 30,000 denominations, because we actually don't know how to live this out with humility and love for one another, and it's what God is doing in this community. So it's actually a beautiful picture of what actually we're called to be in. So um, let's just keep going. Yeah, because the the flip side of that is, is that Curtis and I disagree on a whole lot of stuff. But I do discipleship with, with Curtis. I walk with him and I, I love him and the fact that I think he is off the planet literally um, on some doctrines is irrelevant to our relationship and our fellowship and the fact that I know that the Lord is in him and on him and, and the Lord is, is working uh, in me through this guy. So yeah, we disagree on heaps of stuff but it seems like that doesn't matter and that I think is the only way the church can really be built that we can put aside the doctrine and actually love each other first. So uh, you, you might also want to have a read of verse, uh, chapter uh, 14 and see what the 144,000 were for. I mean, so, you know. Oh, they're celibate men. It's, yeah, absolutely. Celibate Jewish men. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Literally, read yeah. the word. Anyway, the, anyway, whatever they are, have a read of it because actually it's not saying that they're the only ones that are, that are saved. No. They're sealed for a purpose um, and have a, read of, have a read of that. Be encouraged by it. Does everybody get that, that what Greg was, the point he was making there, that if, if we don't learn to do this as a body, we will just scatter, go our little way, find our little subgroups and all that kind of a thing. Um, and that in itself takes away 
the tilling of the ground that pulls us and binds us together. Whenever you find yourself in a place where you're at opposite ends of the scale, it's, it's not that you're both right. It's not that you're both wrong, perhaps, but you could be. So you can't both be right. There's only one truth. But you could both be wrong. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? We need to just get together and journey this through. He will lead us unto all truth. So it is a, it is a great thing if we can learn to do this without um, yeah, pulling each other apart. But everybody gets that city, at least one thing we can agree on here. There's more than 144,000 being saved and in the bride of Christ. Do we agree with that? Okay, everybody's on that page. <laughs> okay, I'm a bit puzzled through your exposition. Uh, that's your exposition, Curtis. Um, did you indicate that the wedding feast is held before the bride is chosen, or did I misunderstand this? Uh, well, you misunderstood it, but that doesn't mean it wasn't my fault. I'm not sure who, uh, who said that. Right here is the Feast of Tabernacles, which, we, which is a point in time, and the... Uh, Feast of Trumpets being here. If we are taken up here and we are doing the wedding feast here, uh, the wedding feast is held before the bride is chosen. The question you're asking is a very good one because you can't have a wedding feast unless a bride is. Yeah. So do you see how it answers the question? I'm not sure who asked it. It would be almost impossible for me to have a true appointed time view and there not be a bride chosen at this point. Do you, do you understand? So if I gave you that, I'm not sure how I did, but hopefully you can see here that no, there's no way that you can have a wedding feast before a bride. And you certainly can't be going into the last great day unless you've got, you know, the whole wedding thing sorted out. So, um, so you've, you've asked a good question that I wish more would be asking in the body, but hopefully I didn't present it in a way that left any doubt to that, and I obviously did for that person. So does that answer that person's question? If you're listening on the website, yell really loud. Uh, can you define what is the church and what is the bride? What is the difference between them? Why is there a difference? Shouldn't the church be the bride? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let's go. Let's we'll use the book of Revelation again. The everybody know there's a report card to the seven churches. Do you believe that that you're if you're called the church, that you're saved or unsaved? Yeah, I'm not sure if you can take any other position. This is the one who bought us speaking to the ones he bought. In each one of those churches, there is a position that Scripture is describing where somebody has to those who overcome. There's an overcoming position mentioned to every single one of them. That position is promised something in each one of those cases that they are given something as a part of overcoming. So we now have something occurring within the saved camp. So that's an interesting scenario. How do you overcome, go on to receive something, yet to those who don't overcome, they're not receiving that same thing. Yet you can't be in this conversation unless you are saved. 
So this is so scripture in itself is revealing something in that sense. But we'll keep we'll keep going a little bit more with that. Um, if if we look at uh, I guess why is there a difference? If we look at the parable, the actual wedding feast itself, and I think this is Matthew 22. Yeah. Um, at the wedding, there's a father, there is a groom, there's a bride. Now, this is the parable of the wedding feast. I really encourage you to go look at this. There's also what there? Guests. Interesting. And certainly we're not talking about Hades here or Sheol or burning the lake of fire, are we? They're at a wedding, a very big one. There's also servants at that wedding. And there's also, it even goes even further, somebody's getting kicked out of the wedding but is being addressed as who? Friend. What were they even doing in there? If there was, so you've got this whole typology of something beautiful being built up that says, you know what? What his blood bought is not in question. It can never be. What we do with his blood and do we make a choice to go to that to go to that altar is a two-way thing. Is it possible that I could take the blood that bought me and trample on it and not care at all about who he actually is? And I would think scripture, if we're honest, is saying this. We can actually throw away our inheritance. We can actually, there is something there, but that's not questioning the blood that bought us. I can't find a scripture, and I'll be honest with you in a parable or even in the book of Revelation itself that I could hang my hat on that says everybody who's in the church is the bride. I've not been able to find that. I've seen some poor English translations where you can sort of go, well, you could maybe infer that from it at best. But then when you do your homework on that, some things fall short. So uh, I, I can't find it. What I can find is that um, I'm learning that I don't put his blood on the stand in what he's justified, what he's bought and paid for. Um, and what I do know is that even Paul himself, right to the very end, was going, what, I go on to, yeah, to get the prize. And he knew something, and he was, at the end, he knew that he had gone on to achieve that. And so, you know, I think that's what Scripture is indicating, if I'm to be honest with that. So, I think, um, and Curtis mentioned this this morning, if um, we talked about the judgment seat and there being a judgment for the things that we've all done, whether good and bad, and the Bible says there is loss. So as God's fire goes through those followers that have built their life on wood, hay and straw, their work gets burnt up and they suffer loss. And, and, and some receive a reward for building their lives on gold, silver and precious stones. And I think in my own uh, journey with him, especially over the last three and a half years, um, I, w I would, s before that, I would skip over scriptures that say this, who who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And I'd go, well, I don't understand that because I thought your blood made me worthy, so I'd skip over it. 
but these are red letters. These are, these, are, these are Jesus actually speaking. Then you'd read in Luke, and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Pretty strong wording, isn't it? You cannot be my disciple. Thought I did that by just praying a prayer. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, once again, I haven't studied the Greek here to find out whether cannot is something different, but I don't necessarily think it is. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost? He then goes through that whole passage of counting the cost. Verse 33, this was Luke 14, 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless with what will be its season, it is, use, it is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I think one of the things that we've done really well at is preaching grace. We've done well at this and we haven't done well at this to such a measure that it's lulled us all into a false sense of security. And the thing that the church, I believe, lacks today is obedience, is to obey. And it's the biggest thing that he's actually screaming, will you obey me? And this is what this passage is saying. And he's looking for an obedient people. Not just people that give it lip service, but people who actually what they say, they do. And I believe that is what the judgment seat is going to be all about. You're going to actually be on show and everything you've said and done, good or bad, is going to be revealed. Now, remember, love, love is what enables even this. His grace is here for us to actually walk this out because he's given us his spirit, he's given us his power, he's given us his living word, and he expects to see something. And yet we've told people he doesn't expect anything. This is two-way. For so long I just, yeah, God loves me, but do I love him? And it's, as it's been preached, his love's never in question, it's my love. And so I didn't marry Danielle because... You know, she, I didn't want to marry her because she had to marry me. I wanted her to marry me because she wanted to marry me. And together, we're working this thing out. And so I, I, I absolutely believe that, that not all who people who say they are will in fact be the bride because she will be blameless, she will be spotless, she will radiate. And from the inside out, you'll know. The truth will set you free. The fruit, he's looking for the, his, own, his own fruit, isn't it? Himself. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Well, it's the fruit of him. He is love. He is joy. He is peace. He is gentleness. So when he sees us, does he see those very, his own attributes? I believe that, that will be his bride. So that's my take on that. And, um, I think this is where sanctification comes in, so we're justified, sanctification, glorification. Sanctification is where the sovereignty of man and God, actually, he, he's allowed a place for it to meet. 
he's got the glorified bit in hand, doesn't he? I don't glorify myself, and I certainly didn't die for myself. The bit he's allowing me to play in is sanctification. And that's the place where his grace is empowering its everything. Because without his grace, how do we even sit here today and even have this conversation? Can I just read this as well? Because this is just another just another scripture. John 12, uh, 26. And it's just where Jesus has been talking about himself, saying that a seed must die for there to be an explosion of life, my words. Um, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to, eternal, to life eternal. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Once again, strong words, isn't it? He must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And in my own, as I was reading that, um, this was a while ago, um, the scripture that's been spoken tonight, Revelation 3, just came to my mind. It was like the Holy Spirit quickened it, which is about sitting with me on my throne. So if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. That's forever. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Do you think that will be an honoring position to be next to him? I think so, eh? So once again, you can, we can see from this that he's expecting something. It's not a free ride. The gift of salvation, the gift of justified is but he's expecting to see something from his church. And the first element of that is that we would love and love him and one another, not reach a lost world. And that's the challenge. Mm. So shouldn't the church be the bride? Yes, the church should be the bride. Why is there a difference? The difference is that not everyone who has received Christ as saviour is actually prepared to follow through and allow him to be Lord preparing themselves through sanctification, through discipleship, to actually present themselves as part of the bride. So some people are happy just to take that offer of grace and leave it there. And those people who leave it there could say that that's the difference between being the bride and being not. So I hope that, um, hope that explains. Is, is, that, is the person who asked that question here tonight, does that um, kind of fill that in for you? No. Okay. Don't go around though going... Are you the bride? You're not the bride. You know what? We all got a serious appointment ahead of us. I think we just keep our eyes focused on him, and he'll sort out who the bride is, right? I I have, you know, because we could get caught up in that too, you know, and it's it's uh, or rewards or all that kind of thing. Again, wrong motivation. Um, but here's 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 what I'm do. I do the best I can to try now motivate and encourage people to seek him. And if they make it and I don't, then I'm just going to name drop for all eternity. <laughs> Good luck with that. Where in the Bible are the five days of silence mentioned? Rev, uh, Revelation 8.1 mentions half an hour of silence, but that's not five days in my understanding, so I'm puzzled. You know five what? Days. I absolutely agree. My little five days here is five days of silence is me just trying to describe that there's five days in between. Perhaps what I should do is just have five days. 
I, I'm just trying to give some sort of description to it. And the reason why I say silence is because generally the whole Christian world is silent on this matter. It doesn't know why. I've heard some very flimsy explanations in every camp, actually. But I'm just calling it the five days of silence. There's so no just way. Just to clarify, that's not literally five days of silence. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> Thank you. Every year. It's all I had to, it's all I had to ask. <laughs> What um, what I would what I would um, say to you is that I'm I'm just saying there's a gap here in this one that occurs for five days every year as we celebrate that's not in the spring feast and it's kind of because it because there's not one in the first in the spring feast because uh, even the 50 days between first fruits and Pentecost is called the counting of the Omer it's clearly understood and known what it is. Right, right up until Pentecost. This one, it's like all of a sudden we finish Day of Atonement and it's just, all right. And then we wait for the wedding feast to start. Seems kind of interesting. So there's a lot of conjecture and discussion in that area. So that's all it is. Um, so the question was more five days of silence mentioned in the Bible? No. Uh, Revelation 8 mentions a half an hour of silence, but that's not the five days. Agreed. In my understanding, so I am puzzled. Fair enough. Hope that's answered it. It's just a gap that's sitting there, and a lot of people just look to this as to why. I've mentioned something called the sheep and goats judgment, which is spoken about. Nobody seems to know where to quite place that, and I believe it's a possibility that it's something that could be in the picture. So, uh, in that in that poem, but that's just pure conjecture. And that's why I've got sort of question mark and what it is. I'm just saying it's there, and we don't really know for sure. And I didn't want to teach this as if we did. Okay? Um, is it a, a, another question, a separate one? Because we will, um, we're going to get through these first because we promised these people. Then we'll, if we have time at the end, we'll take some, we'll take some new questions. Thanks, Julie. Um, where do you explicitly see Jesus shining through in what you have presented so far as being effective tools to really attract people to Christianity? If you were speaking to someone uh, you knew in the office, uh, which would be your five most significant topics in order of significant value, <laughs> that could be reduced to basic conversations uh, that's not too deep, that could potentially confuse people with too much detail. Like the question, the um, you know something you know why you know why I like this question is is because you know what the heart of this is. Okay, well, so how do I get this across, right? What a great question to ask. Um, is this a message for um, for the world? Is this a message for them um, for yeah, the office? Absolutely. Um, if and in fact, I, I live this now. I go through this often, but sort of through the witness, because I've had people say, "Well, if you're not Jewish and you're not this, and then what are you? You know, well, what is the Bible all about? You know?" And I'll tell you something. I mean this. Oh, when I get a chance to explain to what we would call the lost, anyway, to the lost, um, what actually my faith is and what the scripture is, and I explain to them that this is about a marriage covenant and a God who died for us. To actually bought us at a price. You're always starting to see, oh, wait a minute. The whole gospel message is in here. But the lens it's coming through is a lens of love from a position of a covenant, marriage covenant perspective. And when you share that with people that don't believe, 
or or wondering what the Bible is. I honestly, they have that. What do you mean the Bible's about a marriage? Do you know they have no concept of that? What, what are you talking about? I said, well, here, let me explain it to you. I get so much more chance to witness because of what this is, to keep it in the simplicity of what it is. We are in a marriage covenant with a God who sealed, you know, with somebody who's gone wayward, who's brought her back, sealed it with his blood, that we may know him as a part of his plan that makes it real and legitimate. Do you know when I explain legitimacy? Because a lot of what I get from the world a lot of times is, well, well, well if this was just all about saving us because I'm a bad person, then why the heck did he have me born in the first place? That's a good question. And it's one we need to be prepared to be able to answer. Why didn't he just, when you know, you know, well, if you're saved, then what's the point of you? Why aren't you guys gone now? Wouldn't have a concept of a marriage, a covenant, making a choice to know him. See, none of that exists in a lot of what we're trying to share right now. But nothing could be more easier for an unbelieving world to understand or a secular world to understand than their marriage. Believe me. They get it. And if you want to share with that what they're experiencing in just the covenant that they're in or what they, or if they're not married yet, the one they witnessed with their parents, nobody right now does not understand the concept of marriage. No one. And when you can speak to that term, you're speaking to the ultimate way for somebody to be able to instantly relate to the gospel. The gospel message doesn't go anywhere. We're just giving it through a covenant lens. And I'll tell you something. I've never found it so easy now for someone to sit there and to hear it. Because they can't believe. Honestly, they just can't believe it. It's about a marriage. And they're like, what are you talking about? And they keep asking me the questions. Let me share with you. It's not a hideous thing to them because by the end of it, they're kind of willing to hear. You mean that somebody has invited me to something? Yeah. That you've been told, either accept this or burn in hell forever. And if they don't believe that, you'll get your competence. We don't give them a love perspective because we actually don't even see that anymore. You mean that he did this because he's got something ahead for me? He's invited me to something? He wants me to know that he loves me? You mean, we, you mean we're, we're presenting them a shotgun wedding and expecting them to love this version? Or are we going to present them a wedding that's real? Where someone's made a choice to love him back? We can, we can preach this one. But I tell you, the essence of the gospel message it can actually be seen in both. But I believe one is done out of fear and one is done out of love. It's the same message. And the way he's telling us to share this out of love is a marriage, not burn in hell. So I'm, I'm saying, same gospel, let's just get the right lens on. Let's go from fear to love. And watch what happens. I know I lived this. Lived it with my brother. My own family. And apparently family doesn't like to listen to family, which is true most of the time. It's pretty hard to witness to your own family, isn't it? <laughs> anyway. Uh, cool. Uh, why is there no gold mentioned in the millennial temple? 
because a lot of unsanctified people made it in there and stole it before the bride arrived. <laughs> well, the, um, one of the things that I really think that's happening here, we talked a little bit about this because we talked about rings and all this kind of stuff and gold. And what I really love about this is sometimes it's not just what the Bible is saying, but it's very, very conspicuous by what it's not saying or what should be mentioned and it isn't. Because gold is one of the most prominent features in the building of the temple, if you don't know that. Yet this temple being built in the millennium doesn't mention it, yet there's eight chapters on it. I mean, it's describing it to such detail, it's phenomenal. Now, where is it? Now, what is interesting is something given to the bride. And again, I'll head back to Revelation here. I counsel you to buy of me gold refined in the fire. And it's the bride who's actually overcoming. Who is bringing the gold to the temple? Or who may be possibly be considered the refined gold that graces this temple? Isn't that amazing? This is going to a whole new level. It's becoming living. It's no longer gold-plated instruments for the sake of having them. It's not, let's make something look as fancy as we can or as beautiful as we can. Is it possible the most precious thing that was stated in the earlier temples is going to become his very bride himself. She's come to life. This is living. I like his version of gold. If that is what it is, and that's what I believe, and I, it's the understanding that I believe Scripture is giving. It's certainly what I feel was revealed to me. And when I realize that, yes, does all of this inanimate stuff come to life? You better believe it. I think it's the bride. If you want to know what the gold is. Why must Satan be released at the end of 1,000 years of being bound? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Well, um, do you, did anybody remember me saying today that there is a number of the sands of the sea? In fact, the, the, the Bible is making an example. That's a big number, right? That big number... Um, rebels, actually buys into the shenanigans at the end of this. Is it possible that at the end of the thousand years, before he heads to eternity, because we're talking about him going to the marriage altar of eternity, and there's this whole last and final stage that's played out, is it possible that there is one, what is the adversary there for? He's been created as an adversary for a reason. And he's being locked away. So there would be some pretty solid foundations being put in place that our hearts would be exposed, that we couldn't blame the devil for everything that goes wrong. But at the very end, will there be a final sifting? And will he use the adversary one more time for the reason for why he was created? I'm going to see these hearts revealed. What will they choose now? Will they choose me? They know the truth, absolutely. They've lived it. They've had perfect rule, rule, perfect governance. They have been told the truth. And it's gone forth for a thousand years. And do you know what? When he's let loose to run his shenanigans one more time, at the end of it, there's apparently a whole bunch that still go. <coughs> it's stunning. You wouldn't think from our position, how could that possibly be possible? But we're not used to that level of complacency. We might have our own version of it in today's world. But for us to think that he could be on the throne and a bride of Christ actually ruling and reigning, and we would be that complacent? But apparently he's able to fool again. So 
what's the state of the disease that's in us? Pretty serious, I would suggest. So one more final round. So if somebody asked me to sum that up, I'd say a final sifting. There are lots of other examples, I guess, Curtis, where, where people tire of either good governance or um, uh, God's provision through the wilderness. Um, you know, we, we probably, you know, like, like to think, um, you know, uh, if, if we were there, you know, we wouldn't have complained about manna coming down from heaven or, you know, we, we wouldn't have complained about living under a just king. Um, but, you know, there are lots of examples where, where that's exactly what, what happened. Um, you know, I'd like to think if I was, you know, living in the time of Christ, I wouldn't have walked away. But, you know, lots of people heard the message. Um, so, yeah, so I think, I think um, uh, the devil is, is there for one last time to reveal uh, men's hearts, our hearts, um, and and it it I mean in that sense it it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, all the more reason I guess for for us to to know him. It's the pattern, yeah, really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But after that last round, guess what we're heading to? Eternity, and and the eye nor the ear can behold what we. So we're talking about the next stage, which is going to be awesome and incredible to be a part of. But after that, do you know we can't even conceive for those who love and obey Him. Amazing what's coming. We can't even conceive what this is going to look like. One thing's for sure, He has well and truly sorted out what's sitting beside Him as He heads into eternity. He really has. So, just one more um, uh, here. This is a follow-up question from a previous night, but it also does flow on from what we're speaking to now. The thousand years of rain, the millennial uh, rain, is this a Gregorian uh, thousand years, i.e. 1,000 times 365 and one quarter days, or is it 1,000 times 360 <laughs> Hebrew days? Oh, man. Um, you know what? I justify think, your scripture with he, with yeah. scripture in Hebrew. Please. Okay. The the um the only thing I can say is this whole appointed times that we've been looking at over the whole series, here's my honest answer to this, is all based on whose calendar? Pope Gregory's or God's. I don't think the last stage will be anything but God's. But I appreciate the question. But the pattern certainly would suggest where he's not using the Gregorian calendar in this next phase. Or the Julian. Uh, why is it? Uh, why is it finite? Why is it? You know, a, a thousand years. Why is it? Yeah. You know, a thousand years is but of a day. He, is he simply honoring his word and how he views at it? Maybe. It's just that simple. He says that's how he views it. It's his pattern. He's doing it that way. Could he have made it seven fifty? Yeah. Well, why did he create the world in seven days or six days and then yeah. rest? You know, and not eight and a half or yep. five and three quarters. You know, you can ask him when you see him, why was a thousand years but of a day? I don't know. That's the way he set it out, you know. And uh, he's the boss. So if it was 750, then I know I would read in his word and it'd say 750. Right? Uh, 750 days is about a year. Um, 
so I just at some point you just got to say he's pretty consistent with his pattern. I think his word is trustworthy. I think it's all beautiful. I think he's speaking love and grace from beginning to end, not just at little bits. It's right through. This is the most beautiful faith there could possibly ever be. And he is making it real and he's based it on love. And that's what you're ultimately a part of. And that's what we should know. You know, and this is what we should give. It is truly based on the essence of a depth of a love which we will spend an eternity getting to know.